Welcome to Security All In. Uh, this is Sam Curry, and uh, this podcast is all about risk taking. Um, how we take risks as practitioners in our lives, and even how we've all eventually gone all in on security is all fair game for this. And frankly, making it personal and understanding how we as practitioners in security do things. Uh, so with that, I'm joined today by Bob Bigman. Bob, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And uh, my pleasure. And uh, for our listeners' benefit, uh, Bob, you were formerly uh, the CISO at the CIA. Yeah, I retired in uh, May 2012. So getting on so, for five or six years now. And believe it or not. How, it's, how long were you there? In hard to believe. Uh, total of 30 years. Uh, I was the CISO for the last 15 years. So you must have seen the whole nature of well, not just security, but information security change radically in that time. Um, would you characterize it as going through any particularly broad or, or, or um, observable phases and phase changes? Or was it pretty much the same throughout the, at least the last 15? Um, how, how would you characterize well, it? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, from a characterization of size, of course, that's the big measure, was things were very much bigger uh, when I began. Uh, my first assignment in cyber was actually writing uh, a thing called ACF2 roles oh, yeah. on IBM on IBM MVS and VM computers. Uh, using as a side, uh, Bob, I was actually the product manager for ACF2 and for Top Secret. <laughs> so I know it well. Oh, God love, God love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. So please continue, though. Yep. Yeah, so I, I wrote the first wrong role uh, in ACF2 for the agency. Uh, eventually, I learned to write them the right way and stayed in computers from mainframe to mini computers. Um, worked on the DECVAX VMS. Oh, multi yeah. multi level secure operating system, which only securely operated on one level. But other than that, it was a wonderful <laughs> system. So, so size changed, but the issues were always always the same: um, integrity, security, uh, authentication, authorization, access control, and audit. Never changed from that first ACF two role down to um, you know the work we're doing now in um, authorization and access control on client-server environments. That, that part hasn't changed at all. And um, it, it would seem that when you first joined, maybe you could talk a little bit about how, you were, how your work related, in so much as you can say it, to the mission sure. for the agency. And then if I did the math right, you sure. became CISO in the late 90s-ish. Um, so how did your role actually, change with that? Yeah, I became CISO in 89, 90, somewhere, somewhere around there. Anyways. I was um, there, yeah. So yeah, so no problem. Um, so yeah, uh, a couple a couple different ways. Uh, when I first began, uh, we were still mostly mainframe based, so it was all, uh, believe it or not, still largely um, old IBM thirty two seventy connection through uh, multiple layers of cryptography to a data center. Um, buried, uh, you know, deep beneath the ground uh, with people in white smocks. And we, um, you know, most of the work was still uh, on how to keep data sets and processes, you know, jobs separate. Um, and the way we handled it back then is we basically just isolated computer centers. 
Yeah. We had a computer center for administrative things, you know, the payroll, the accounting, all that, the asset management. We had a, we had a data center for um, the, for analytics, what they called analytics at that day, but that was just a whole bunch of data sets, uh, large, small, that we were looking at. And then we had a data center um, for operations, in which the people who ran ops and did ops and collected information and ran assets that they ran. And the three didn't uh, connect to each other uh, until the mid-90s. And when we connected the analytical one to the administrative one, and then a couple years later, we connected the uh, operations one through very, very, you know, distinct and restricted access uh, ports, not 3270 even, excuse me, not even TCP IP. And then that whole network, basically over time, as trust increased, and we were able to, you know, figure out how best to secure it and understand what the threat environment was. Uh, it basically that network went from a classic IBM network into a, um, oh, I guess it was a 16-4 token ring network, <laughs> where we physically configured and controlled access by the actual rings and the way the rings routed. And then eventually, over time, uh, now we're after, you know, sometimes after 2000 something. Uh, into a full uh, IP network with firewalls. Uh, and it's still hard, uh, but it's going to probably be that way for some time. It's still, it's still hard for people to use our resources because they often in a day log in and log out of 10 different networks. Yeah, uh, I, can, I can imagine both different physical systems and different authentication systems and how do you exactly. keep track of it and, yep. and sign off as well as right. sign on? And yeah, I'd like to dive into something you alluded to, which was the nature of the sure. changing threat landscape. And I can imagine in the early days, probably closely related to ELINT or electronic intelligence in general, and then maybe separating, but there's a general trend to converge or of convergence of uh, techniques and vectors and mechanisms by the threat actors. How did you see that? landscape change, if you could talk about the phases it went through a little bit. So um, it's a levels of maturity, I think, um, but on both sides, both on the actor performing the threats mm. and uh, our, our ability to respond and how we defended it against them. Uh, for the majority of the time, the, the most worries were electromagnetic emanation threats, right? Mm-hmm. Remember those days oh, of... Yeah. Uh, and we layered uh, all this hardware in layers and layers of electromagnetic netting and isolation and various and levels and types of filters. And everything else. Oh, oh, everything. I mean, we spent, you know, the U.S. government, how much money we spent of your taxpayer dollars <laughs> on uh, electromagnetic um, was just amazing, as was the other side. Um, and that was our understanding for many years of the nature of the cyber threat. Uh, but remember, as you exited the Cold War, it was almost um, like a, almost a, uh, a known set of pathways, both on offense and defense, and intel and counterintel. Right. And, and, and I, I got to assume that that changed not just with technology, but with the multipolar world and, and, and this sort so, of sophistication right. of new actors, right? So I remember meeting very early on, you know, very, when I say very early on, many years ago in which we actually did, for the first time, started um, doing human, what they call human asset tasking, mm. where we actually began a series of uh, looking and started recruiting assets who had cyber knowledge. Um, 
before then we really oh, this, this, this is this is for both employees as well as um i think the the term is just assets that you have uh, out there you know right. in the field kind of thing, trade craft right. and stuff like that yeah right, right. so we didn't up until well, I'm not sure I can say when, but for many years, we didn't go after and recruit people who had um, any cyber knowledge. That was, number one, we had to first train train our, op, our, our, um, our case officers on what that meant. Uh, so that was interesting of itself. Uh, now, we have a, you know, gener- now we have generations of trained uh, cyber engineers who, who, who did nothing but recruit people who have cyber knowledge. Um, Traditionally, we always tried to recruit communicators for obvious reasons, because they had teeth, right? Mm-hmm. And that was easy to understand. Uh, then we became a little more sophisticated. And um, I, I remember contributing some of the early efforts that we had on, okay, how do we find these people? You know, how do we target them? What do we say to them when we meet them? What do we say? What, what interests what interest them? How do we recruit them? Um, and uh, to be honest with you, we didn't have many successes for many years, but then, you know, at the time we got a little more sophisticated at it and focused a little bit more at it. And, um, uh, you know, we began our effort to basically understand better what the enemies, plural, were doing uh, to us, uh, what they were trying to do. Um, and uh, the same was going on the other side. We knew from counterintelligence that they were looking for the, some of the same things that we were asking about. Um, and we were able to pretty much draw a picture of, you know, where they thought, you know, they were able to um, exploit um, classified technology. And we responded, you know, pretty much along the lines of how anyone would um, and increased, you know, our defenses based on what we understood the, the threat to be. Um, so so to just, just for listeners, was, you're saying you, you had your sure. view of the enemy. You had your defensive yes. posture, and then you had the enemy's view of you as you could reconstruct it. So you would say, "We right. look like this to them," in a in a uh, in, in turtles all the way down kind of way, right? An epistemological problem. You're, mm-hmm. you're saying, coming mm-hmm. in from the other side, we're playing the game of getting inside their head and doing the countermeasures back and forth as a game to make sure that you're, right. I guess, balancing the right resources in defense and choosing the right pathways in offense. But you get you get this iteration back and forth of playing the game of what does my opponent know or know that I know and so on. Right. And that, that, that's a whole discipline unto itself. Uh, and there's people who understand this business a lot better than I do. But it's a lot of red and blue team um, and um, intelligence, counterintelligence, testing. I mean, it's a real, uh, you know, it's, it's the business of, of intelligence. Uh, collection and analysis. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a fundamental human um, behavior, right? We've, we, we're in a world right, exactly. where where it is ultimately about a double blind game and, and trying to play the odds. Um, now, I, this might be a good, a good time to shift gears a little bit and talk about since sure. you left, um, since you left the agency, and I know that, that we've talked about your personal mission in the past, what, what it is that, that you find um, energizing and how you apply your experience and your knowledge, because that back and forth game honed over three decades is something that the, the, the private sector certainly doesn't have. And even some of the public sector doesn't have to the same degree you had at the CIA. Can you talk a little bit about what your personal mission is and um, what it is sure. you, you seek to do in helping people these days? Yeah. So, and yeah, I consider my passion. What I like to do is, you know, uh, talk specifically to CISOs uh, and people in corporations uh, responsible for IT security 
and try to understand you know their perspective on cybersecurity what what how they understand the whole risk process how they make decisions and um you know as nicely as possible kind of redirect them from um frankly vendor spin what they read online what the blogs say <laughs> with the blog. and, and and kind of direct them back to reality as to well you know that's not really how you know these various apt groups work they kind of work like this um and make sure that they're focused on you know truly real issues that if they're going to spend you know a company's dollars on in defending that they're really getting their biggest bang for the buck um and they're not as they often are confused by the spin and the noise that they hear out on the internet. Um, and, and, and what I consider a success is when I get them refocused, they have a good set of priorities, they're working on them. And I can see because of testing they're doing or we're doing to see that, you know, in fact, they are doing a better job at cybersecurity. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that's what I enjoy doing. Yeah, it, you know, speaking as a CISO who's come up from the technical side, I've, I've always appreciated um, your advice, but, but more importantly, I've always been impressed by how you keep your hand in the game, um, even after so long. Um, oh, thank you. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's honestly, um, you, you've always got some insight rooted in how bad guys are really behaving or what really matters. Um, you know, and certainly I strive to, to, to bring that uh, to my daily job. Um, but mm -hmm. how do you do that? Um, you know, if we, if, if listeners today are saying, well, I aspire to be like Bob one day and be, be uh, Bob Bigman, um, even if I'm not at the CIA, how, how, do, you, how do you recommend yeah. that people keep both technical and aligned to the business and get those priorities right? Because there's at least two or three disciplines there of being deep in right. security, deep in the business, and deep in being a manager and building a good security practice. How do you recommend someone approach that today based on what you've seen? So it's a little unfair. I mean, I, I have a bit of an advantage because I, you know, being in this business for over 30 years, you know, frankly, I just kind of know people. I mean, yeah. they're in various ISPs, corporations, government agencies. And, um, you know, I talk to people and, you know, what, what are you seeing? You know, what do you know about this type of attack? Um, it takes time, by the way. It just, just doesn't come natural to everyone to want to share these experiences. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to get an understanding of, you know, what they know and compare um, uh, information with people in this discipline, primarily with people mostly in the telecommunications sector um, and in uh, some of the defense, um, what they call the DIV, the defense industrial base. Yep. Um, because they're largely, and in the large U.S. corporations, they're mostly the targets. But to be honest with you, the real serious, attacks are going against the dib um and you're trying the, the ones that are possible that, you mean the higher level of sophistication yes. and dedication the state and, sponsor and innovation yeah of course yeah yes there's the banks there's the financials there's you know the ip of the commercial industry and that's interesting but uh, at the end of the day what really is the target is um what is the u.s industrial military complex doing today to us, you know, what are what are they planning on doing today? Um, I'm going to shift. shift I'm going to shift gears here a little bit and say I'm just going to ask you uh, some questions, um, uh, and and uh, hopefully hopefully they're fun. Um, the first one is uh, pretty simple. In in your 30 years at the CIA, what are you most proud of accomplishing? Um, uh, so I'd say number one is we migrated our focus. 
we really got super serious about understanding our data, uh, understanding how to better secure it, who had access to it, managing access to it. Um, none of which, by the way, or very little, is cyber related. Uh, it's more common sense and processes and policies. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I think my the thing I really uh, felt best about, you know, when I retired was in moving our focus uh, from uh, system, just system protection to really more focused on data protection than system protection. Uh, we looked at everything, and still do, I hope, uh, from a process, uh, from perspective of data security. Right. Um, and that's something you don't see almost in any organization, right? I mean, all we ever want to talk about is system security. Most yeah. U.S. And, and global companies don't even have a sense of what data is where on their networks. And, and now they're paying a big price for that. Oh, yeah. And there's this fetish almost for machine-centric, system-centric. If the box is okay, everything must yep. be okay. And, and not the notion that it's an abstraction um, and that, that exactly. the focus should be on something completely different. Yeah. That, that, that by the way, is a big claim no matter when it occurred and even more so that you're able to, to make that change happen. Um, uh, my next question is um, looking back at the time, and, and I understand if you say, hey, Sam, I can't answer this. Um, what was the most uh, outrageous thing you were exposed to or maybe the most uh, surprising <laughs> thing? I know sometimes you have some great stories, uh, all, all of course, that you can share, but lo- looking at your time there or even after, what have you seen where you went, wow, that was a crazy, that was a crazy thing to have seen? Uh, well, outrageous in, in a kind of funny sense was uh, having to deal, deal with a directory service, as I said before, where a person, and, and of course no directory should reasonably ever have to deal with this, where a person had multiple identities uh, multi- and was in multiple places at the same time, if you can consider that, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and had multiple identity tokens. I probably can't say more than that. Got it. Um, and, so you, you had okay. to deal in the microcosm of the agency with the lack right. of user centrism. I got asked this trick question years ago. I was identity architect, as you know, for years. And they said, how many identities do you have? And I sort of thought how many there were. And in the end, it was like one. There's one me, right? And there's mm-hmm. just many right. copies of me and shadows of me. And, and I'm not deprovisioned. And you can't have, you know, 10 employees and a, and a thousand identities in systems. That's crazy, right? Um, right. But you felt it so first, it deal, like. Oh, this and, and this was all true when not only did the one person have multiple real identities, um, when they were in certain places using certain equipment, they were identified as something A, not even working for the U.S. government, uh, but accessing the same resources as they were when they were in the U.S. government, perhaps identified from another agency with another center of identity. Oh, and if, and if they haven't happened to come into one of our facilities where they could log on with their true identity, we had to be able to recognize them as who they were in their real identity. Oh, <laughs> well, that, that and, and, and you've also same. got assets of totally different people. Oh, of course. Oh, of course. All three were the same person. Just, we had just, to be able to recognize yeah, just, just identity, just, single, just identity harmonizing could put people at risk. Right? Oh, I mean, oh, I mean, we would... Uh, you know, I would look across the table at people like from Microsoft and say, you think you have problems with AD. <laughs> you, you don't even understand the nature of the problem that I have. Um, so, yeah, we had to work with goofy things like that all the time. I, I, um, had, uh, I had to work with the FBI at one point, and they had to deal with confidential informants, and, and they needed strong authentication with nothing that could be found on them. I mean, 
could you imagine if yes. they found somebody with a secure ID token that said sure. FBI on it? Right. I mean, this yes. would lead to death. That's not a good thing, right? Yep. Um, yep. Right. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of that. I mean, there was a lot of things we had to deal with, but uh, the one that I keep remembering was kind of a. Uh, it was never resolved properly. We we always had troubles with it. Was the whole identity thing, um, and that's just something that other organizations just don't deal with, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to shift gears one more time. I, I hope this sure. is not too out of left field. No um, problem. I know you're a Civil War buff, and um, I, yeah. I got to say, <laughs> the most interesting people in security, by the way, are Renaissance people, right? They have very wide interests and skill levels, and I have the most fun when they get brought to to the table. I mean, part of the the whole purpose of uh, security all in is to get some of that like at what point did you go all in on security at what time um you know how do you approach risk yeah. and that sort of thing and we'll talk about that in a minute but i'm curious uh, has your civil war um interest and perspective and understanding the sort of evolution of, of uh, the confederate states and and the conflict between the states um has it helped you um in any way in understanding human behavior and uh, nature of geopolitics and diplomacy and such have, have you is it was it purely a passion or did in your brain did you make some lateral connections and did it make you better at what you did i you know i'll be honest with you, i don't think i consciously ever made uh these you know cross connections of the two domains but um i'm sure i did at some subconscious level um or look at human behavior um based on some you know technique that beauregard used <laughs> <laughs> or um I mean, I used to always, when we were meeting mm. and we'd have issues come up, I probably, you know, a thousand times in my career, I may probably said, you know, that reminds me of the time, you know, um, at, uh, you know, at the wilderness campaign, and, you know, people would just look at me like, you know, where the <laughs> hell is this man coming from? <laughs> who the hell well, is this person? Well, the, the, the nature of, of um, intelligence um, and, and I won't say data security, but certainly compartmentalization and how we operate, some of our agencies started then. So I'm sure some of the legacy of what happened with uh, um, the Secret Service yes, and the Pinkertons probably pursued, persisted, right? Right, uh, right up through how Ma McClellan did, did stuff uh, and was outmaneuvered, mm -hmm. right, in the peninsula. I'm sure yes. some of that probably wound up through many tortured ways to this but i won't i won't push the issue but if it ever occurs to you do do let me know um okay so maybe we should talk about risk a little bit okay you know, this is called security all in and at some point we make bets and as human beings we're not very good at understanding probability to what extent do you think this is all a risk game and that there's a quantifiable, acceptable risks that have to be taken. To what, to what extent is this like other games, like say poker? I mean, we, did we try to do quantifiable risk uh, metrics and did we buy and, and use taxpayers' uh, money to quantify risk? Uh, yes, uh, because, well, we, we had various directors and senior people who said, you know, we ought to give this a try. Yeah. Was it ever successful? No, and, and I think probably well, I wouldn't say exclusively, but you know, high chance. I, I've never found anyone in the cyber industry who's been successful at applying any type of uh, quantitative risk-based theory, gaming theory um, analysis that's been successful. And, and believe me, I've kind of got, especially since I uh, retired, I've walked into many companies where they want to spend time talking about you know, risk measurement, uh, largely because of compliance requirements. 
And I basically tell them you're wasting your time. Um, you know, that, that, it goes back to some point I mentioned earlier. This is just not how the opposition does their, their work. They, they, don't, they don't hack you based on a risk uh, matrix that they work up on, on the chalkboards or in the um, uh, software of some uh, APT group. Mm. Uh, it's about it's about opportunity, and opportunity is is, is the X. It's, it, it is clearly the number one opportunity, meaning that you know there's a big potential big payoff uh, if I can get to this get to this database or this capability, um, like the Swift International Banking Transaction Network. Mm. Uh, if I can manipulate that, there's a big potential. But there's a collection of sound cyber hygiene things that you need to do. To minimize that risk, right? And these companies don't do that. Mm. Yeah, I'll give you a, a great example. So one of these companies, by the way, I, I, I can't tell you who it is. Of course. The the uh, subnet that their Swift transaction databases, these are Oracle databases, uh, sat in, um, were allowed to connect out to the internet because of the all you know all mm. everyone all eight. Uh, AD object role on the internal network, thinking that it's okay to allow everyone go outbound. Oh. Now, oh. why in God's name you would ever think it's okay <laughs> oh. for that data, for the Swiss database on that network to be able to go out all services, all protocols, all ports to the internet? You know, just is like shocking. I mean, you should be shot for doing that. Oh, that's um, horrendous. So that's why. That's what. Right. So that's why I say that you know, yes, there are lots of things at risk and lots of things are targets, but you can do a few things smartly in, in what we call the cyber hygiene test, right? To minimize your risk across, across the corporation. Um, don't let these subdomains talk to the internet without some restrictions on them. And the only restriction should be the, the other end of the SWIFT network, by the way, uh, called, the federal, called the Federal Reserve. Um, but some of this, fact, is, some of this is incremental change, right? The, 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 that, that we, we, through small changes, open things up to more access, more protocols, more ports, more you name it, and it was never originally designed for that, and nobody went back and revisited it. Um, well, yes, and you know, the other thing I found in private industry is, um, you know, there's not a lot of things the government does well, but you know, we, we did, at least in my organization and others who I'm familiar with, we certainly did our governance better. You know, we, pers we, we certainly made corporate decisions better and, and, and didn't allow what we call shadow cowboy IT to go on mm. and people to do these types of things without some type of corporate oversight. Um, and and I, when I mentioned this case to the Federal Reserve, he said, you know, I'm going to get back to you. I wanna, we're going to send out a uh, request to all our uh, regulated banks to find out, do you do what this company did? Um, of the 13, 10 they, responded positive that they did. <laughs> wow. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm surprised that that many knew, um, without, without really looking, but the fact that 10 did well, and, they, and they told you that's pretty, that's pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, what, you know, what do you expect? So, uh, yes, there are many paths, but boy, you know, I, I I'm sorry. I, I have no, um, sympathy uh, for, for institutions that don't do cyber hygiene the right way. As I said, there's just some simple things you need to pay attention to. Yeah. Uh, we're approaching the end of our, our time here, Bob, and, and um, you know, I, I have uh, 
one last question for you, and it's I think it's sure. a pretty easy one. Uh, feel free to say no to this if you prefer. Um, I may I may get some fellow CISOs together at one of these uh, coming events. Um, you know the the conferences we all go to, or when we're all in the same city. Um, I've been thinking about hosting a poker game, and I was thinking um, if I can find what? folks a poker game. If I can find folks okay. who, are, who are CISOs, uh, get them around a table. Um, and everyone's cool with it, we may actually record it, um, what we talk about. We, would you be open to joining us for a uh, security all-in poker game at some point? Count me in. Done. Done. All right. Will well, it be uh, in real or virtual? <laughs> um, I, well, I'd, actually, we, we could do either. So, um, yep. That'd be Bob, fun. Bob, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great sure. conversation, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.